Chapter Five of *The Sign of Silence* by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Five: Time Will Prove. These are truly the fevered days of journalistic enterprise the world over. There are no smarter journalists than those of Fleet Street, and none, not even in New York, was sent more keen for sensational news. The day's story is the first thought in every newspaper office, and surely no story would have been a greater scoop for any journal than the curious facts which I have related in the foregoing pages. But even though the gentlemen of the press are ubiquitous, many a curious happening and many a remarkable coroner's inquiry often remain unreported. And so in this case, when on the following morning the coroner for the borough of Kensington held his inquiry in the little court off the high street, no reporter was present, and only half a dozen idlers were seated in the back of the gloomy room. When the jury had taken their seats after viewing the remains, according to custom, the police inspector reported to the coroner that the body remained unidentified, though the description had been telegraphed everywhere. "'I might add, sir,' went on the inspector, "'that there is strong belief that the young lady may be a foreigner. Upon the tab of her coat she was wearing the name of a costumier.' sartori via roma only the name of the street and not the town is given but it must be somewhere in italy we are in communication with the italian police with a view to ascertaining the name of the town and hope thus to identify the deceased very well said the coroner a shrewd middle-aged clean-shaven man in gold pince-nez let us have the evidence and he arranged his papers with business-like exactitude the procedure differed in no way from that in any other coroner's court in the kingdom, the relation of dry details by matter-of-fact persons spoken slowly in order that they might be carefully taken down. The place was indeed a gloomy one, for the morning was dark and the place was lit by electric light. The jury, twelve honest householders of Kensington, appeared from the outset eager to get back to their daily avocations. They were unaware of the curious enigma about to be presented to them. Not until I began to give my evidence did they appear to evince any curiosity regarding the case. But presently, when I had related my midnight interview with my friend, who was now a fugitive, the foreman put to me several questions. "'You say that after your return from your visit from this man, Sir Digby Kemsley, he rang you up on the telephone?' "'Yes.' "'What did he say?' inquired the foreman, a thin white-headed man, whose social standing was no doubt slightly above that of his fellow jurymen. "'He asked me to return at once,' was my reply. "'But this appears extraordinary.' "'We are not here to criticize the evidence, sir,' interrupted the coroner sharply. "'We are only here to decide how the deceased came by her death, by accident or by violence. Have you any doubt?' The foreman replied in the negative, and refrained from further cross-examining me. The coroner himself, however, put one or two pointed questions. He asked me whether I believed that it had been actually Sir Digby speaking on the second occasion, when I had been rung up, to which I replied, "'At first the voice sounded unfamiliar. At first did you recognize it afterwards?' I paused for a few seconds and then was compelled to admit that I had not been entirely certain. "'Voices are, of course, often distorted by the telephone,' remarked the coroner. 
but in this case you may have believed the boys to have been your friends because he spoke of things which you had been discussing in private only a half an hour before it may have been the voice of a stranger that is my own opinion sir i replied ah he ejaculated and i entirely agree with you for if your friend had contemplated the crime of murder he would scarcely have telephoned to you to come back he would be most anxious to get the longest start he could before the raising of any hue and cry this remark further aroused the curiosity of the hitherto apathetic jury who sat and listened intently to the medical evidence which followed the result of the doctor's examination was quickly told and not of great interest he had been called by the police and found the young woman dying from a deep wound under the breast which had penetrated to the heart the result of a savage blow of some long thin and very sharp instrument the girl was not dead when he first saw her but she expired about ten minutes afterwards i should think that the weapon used was a knife with a very sharp triangular blade judging from the wound the spruce-looking doctor explained the police however have failed to discover it the words of the witness held me dumbfounded have you ever met with knives with triangular blades doctor inquired the coroner oh yes was the reply one sees them in collections of medieval arms in ancient days they were carried almost universally in southern europe the blade about nine inches long and sometimes perforated along the blade grease impregnated with mineral poison was placed so that on striking some of the grease would remain in the wound this form of knife was most deadly and in italy it was known as a misericordia i sat there listening with open mouth why because i knew where one of those curious knives had been one with a carved handle of cracked yellow ivory i had often taken it up and looked at the coat of arms carved upon the ivory the shield with the six balls of the princely house of the medici and in your opinion doctor the deceased came by her death from a blow from such a weapon as you describe the coroner was asking that's my firm opinion the wound penetrated to the heart and death was probably almost instantaneous would she utter a cry i think she would and yet no one seems to have heard any noise remarked the coroner is that so he asked turning to the police inspector we have no evidence of any cry being heard replied the officer i purposely asked the other tenants of the flats above and below but they heard no unusual sound one of the detective sergeants was then called inspector edwards though present being purposely omitted in reply to the coroner he described the finding of the body its examination and the investigation which ensued i need not ask you if you have any clue to the assassin said the coroner when he had concluded writing down the depositions i presume you are actively prosecuting inquiries yes sir was the brief response i think gentlemen the coroner said turning at last to the jury that we can go no further with this inquiry to-day we must leave it for the police to investigate and if we adjourn let us say for a fortnight we may then i hope have evidence of identification before us the case certainly presents a number of curious features not the least being the fact that the owner of the flat has mysteriously fled when he is found he will no doubt throw some light upon the puzzling affair i have to thank you for your attendance to-day gentlemen he added addressing the dozen respectable householders and ask you to be present again this day fortnight at noon there was evident dissatisfaction among the jury as there always is when a coroner's inquest is ever adjourned 
it is certainly the reverse of pleasant to be compelled to keep an appointment which may mean considerable out-of-pocket expense and much personal inconvenience one juror indeed raised an objection as he had to go to do business in scotland whereupon the coroner as he rose expressed his regret but declared himself unable to assist him it was he remarked his duty as a citizen to assist in this inquiry and to arrive at a verdict after that the court rose and everyone broke up into small groups to discuss the strange affair of which the press were at present in ignorance edwards had crossed the room and was speaking to me but i heard him not i was thinking of that triangular bladed weapon the misericordia of the middle ages so frequently used for stealthy knife thrusts coming he asked at last this aroused me to a sense of my surroundings, and I followed him blindly out into the afternoon shopping of Bustle, High Street, Kensington. Outside the underground station were the flower-sellers. Some were offering that tribute which the Riviera never fails to send to us Londoners in spring, sprigs of mimosa, the yellow flower which would be worn by the mysterious E.P.K., the written message to whom reposed in my writing-table at home. Personally, I am not a man of mystery, but just an ordinary London business man, differing in no way to thousands of others who are at the head of prosperous commercial concerns. London, with all its garish glitter, its moods of dullness and of gaiety, its petrol-smelling streets, its farces of passing life, and its hard and bitter dramas always appealed to me. It was my home, the atmosphere in which I had been born and bred, nay, my very existence. I loved London, and was ever true to the city of my birth, even though its climate may be derided, and Paris claimed as the one city in which to find the acme of comfort and enjoyment. I had not sought mystery, far from it. It had been thrust upon me, and now, as we went along the high street in Kensington, towards the police station, I found myself a sudden but important factor in a stern chase, a manhunt such as London had seldom known for Edwards was saying to me, at all hazards, we must find your friend Kemsley, and you, Mr. Royal, must help us. You know him and can identify him. There are grave suspicions against him, and these must be cleared up in view of the mysterious tragedy in Harrington Gardens. You surely don't expect me to denounce my friend, I cried. It is not a question of denouncing him. His own actions have rendered the truth patent to everyone. The girl was brutally killed, and he disappeared. Therefore he must be found, Edward said. But who was it who telephoned to me, do you think? Himself, perhaps. He was full of inventiveness, and he may have adopted that course hoping, when the time came, to prove an alibi. Who knows? asked the famous inspector. Look here, I said as we crossed the threshold of the police station. I don't believe Sir Digby was either an impostor or an assassin. Time will prove, Mr. Royal, he laughed with an incredulous air. A man don't take all these precautions before disappearing unless he has a deeper motive. Your friend evidently knew of the lady's impending visit. Indeed, how could she have entered the flat had he not admitted her? She might have had a key, I hazarded. Might, but not very likely, he said. No, my firm conviction is that the man you know as Sir Digby Kemsley struck the fatal blow and took the knife away with him. I shrugged my shoulders, but did not reply. Inside the station we passed into the long room devoted to the officers of the Criminal Investigation Department attached to the division, 
and there met two sergeants who had given evidence. I was shown the photograph of the dead unknown calm and even pretty, just as I had seen her lying in Digby's room. The medical evidence was curious, Mr. Royal, wasn't it? Edwards remarked. That triangular knife ought not to be very difficult to trace. There surely are not many of them about. No, I replied faintly, for the recollection of one which I had seen only a few days prior to the tragic occurrence, the one with the arms of the Medici carved upon its hilt, arose vividly before me. To me, alas, the awful truth was now plain. My suspicion regarding the culprit had, by the doctor's evidence, become entirely confirmed. I set my jaws hard in agony of mind. What was a mystery of London was to me no longer a mystery. End of chapter 5. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks.com.